If you knew that you only had a few more days to live on planet Earth, how would you spend those remaining days? Would you empty the bank account and vacation in the Caribbean? Would you go on a shopping spree in Paris or London? Would you simply surround yourself with family and friends and spend a few more fleeting moments with them? Would you seek to make amends with people that you've wronged over the years? Or would life just simply be business as usual? If you only had a few more days to live on planet Earth, how would you spend those remaining days? The reality is that neither you nor I know with any certainty our death date. But Jesus knew with accuracy his departure date. When Jesus entered Jerusalem during Passover week, he knew this was the final week of his life on planet Earth. He knew that by Friday, crowds would shout crucify him and he would be led outside the city, climb Calvary's hill, and there he would die. Jesus understood he had come on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came so that you might be saved. This morning, when we catch up with Jesus, we're in the middle of Passion Week. And what do we find Jesus doing? He's preaching. He's teaching outside the temple courts. Jesus is giving one more parable. Today we come to the conclusion of our eight-part summer sermon series entitled Storytime, Parables of Jesus. I hope and pray that you have uh, loved and learned these parables as much as I have uh, appreciated preparing and preaching these parables. Jesus gave us a lot of parables. It was a, a steady diet in his preaching ministry. And one more time, I ask you to consider a parable of Jesus. Take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 20. I want to read in your hearing verses 9 to 19. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 20, allow me to begin at verse 9. I'll conclude at verse 19. He, being Jesus, went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. 
Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, the obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. Our passage is another one of those parables. By now you know that a parable is a compound Greek word, para and balo. Para means alongside, balo means to throw. So a parable is a fictitious story that's thrown alongside real life. It's an earthly story with an eternal truth. In this particular parable, we discover that this is recorded not only in Luke's gospel, but also Matthew and Mark. So three out of the four gospel writers have this story in their gospel track. Jesus simply sets the stage by saying that a man planted a vineyard. He entrusted the day-to-day operations to tenant farmers. And then he went away for a very long time. The scenario that Jesus set up would have been easy for the first century to visualize. There were numerous vineyards on the hillside. Many of them were owned by wealthy landowners. Those landowners oftentimes were absent and they entrusted the day-to-day care of those vineyards to tenant farmers. In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus says the landowner took care of all the provisions. He built a wall. He dug a wine press. He built a watchtower. Matthew is telling us what Luke implies, that the landowner thought of every contingency possible. He set up this vineyard for success. He built a wall to protect the vineyard from would-be animals and thieves. He built a wine press, which was really out of convenience. So when the harvest would come, they would just have to take the grapes and press them into wine right there in the wine press that was dug beside the vineyard. This landlord also uh, constructed a watchtower. The watchtower served two purposes. First of all, uh, from that vantage point, you could look out over the horizon, see in every direction any potential robbers that might come and try to steal the profit of the vineyard. But the watchtower also provided housing for the tenant farmers. This landowner thought of everything. He wanted the vineyard to be successful, so he set it up, giving all the provisions, all the stipulations. Now, what's understood in Jesus' story is that in those days, a landowner would enter into a contract with the tenant farmers. The contract would list out all the stipulations. It would specify everything, and if you were in the business of owning and operating vineyards, you had to have a great deal of patience. Everybody knew that it took at least four, if not five seasons, for the vines to produce a bountiful cluster of grapes. So you would eventually get an ROI, return on your investment, but it would take a while. So you had to be patient. You were in this for the long haul. So every landowner would develop a contract. 
he would spell out to the tenant farmers everything that he would provide. The land, the clearing, the tools, the man hours that were needed. He would speak about compensation. He would speak of what's expected at what year uh, in this venture. He would declare what year he would send servants back at harvest time to receive his share of the crop. He would even specify how much he expected that vineyard to produce. And every contract would also stipulate and spell out that where there is a surplus, that surplus would go back to the tenant farmers. It was a way to incentivize them to be diligent and to work hard and to do their jobs well. So a contract thought of everything. The landowner thought of every contingency possible. And Jesus says in his story uh, that this landowner provided everything that was needed for the vineyard to be successful. When Jesus says that the landowner sent a servant to receive some of the harvest, everybody in the crowd would have been able to connect the dots. They would have said, well, Jesus just now fast forwarded about four, maybe five years. It's now time for that vineyard to produce a crop. Uh, the vines have been planted. Everything has been pruned. Uh, the seasons have come. The seasons have gone. Now it's time for this a vineyard to produce clusters of grapes. So the landowner, as he would specify, sent a servant. The fact that the landowner sent a servant and didn't show up himself, that's not surprising. What is shocking is what the tenant farmers did to the servant of the landowner. Jesus said they beat him. The word beat, it means they punched him in the face. They roughed him up a bit. They sent him away empty-handed. He went back to the landowner with nothing in his hand. No harvest, no grapes, no wine, no revenue, nothing. By their actions, they were declaring they had no intention of giving the landowner his due. Now, what's the landowner to do in response? Well, in Jesus' story, the landowner is extremely patient. He sent a second servant they did the same thing to the second servant. In fact, the hostility intensified. Not only did they beat him, but they treated him shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. The landowner who's so benevolent, he's so patient, he sent a third servant. Jesus said the th third servant went, and the tenant farmers wounded him, kicked him out of the vineyard, sent him away empty-handed. The word wounded is the Greek word from which we get the English word traumatized. They traumatized this old boy. They beat him up. They roughed him up. The hostility intensified from the first to the second to the third servant. And by their actions, they were saying, we no longer want to serve under the authority of the landowner. This is our vineyard. We are not going to give the landowner what the landowner is due. That word for wounded, that means traumatized, it's the same word that Jesus employed in his story of the Good Samaritan to describe how the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus says he was wounded. You know, that man who was stripped and beaten to a pulp, robbed of all of his money, left half dead in his own pool of blood, he was wounded. He was traumatized. And so these tenant farmers had mistreated, had maligned, all the servants that the landowner sent. Not one or two, but three servants. Jesus now asked the question, 
What then should the landowner do? Now, in some ways, that's a silly question, isn't it? Jesus lives in the days, and you can still hear the echo of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You would expect for the landowner to assemble a small army of people, go to his vineyard, take those tenant farmers behind the old woodshed and give them a good old-fashioned tail whipping. That's what you expect to happen. In fact, what you really expect, um, I could say in more forceful words, but we're in mixed company, so I'm not supposed to talk like that. And I'm a preacher, and people have told me I shouldn't talk like that. So you understand what I'm saying. What the landowner should do, he should go and he should wipe them off the planet. They have mistreated the servants of the landowner, and the landowner has every right to go in and to take those tenant farmers behind the woodshed and just rip them a new one. But in response, the landowner is so kind, so patient. He's more benevolent than I would be, more benevolent than you would be. It's at this point of the story that we learn that the farmer is also a father. He said, I'll send my son, whom I love. Maybe they'll respect him. When he describes his son as the one whom I love. The implication is this is the one and only son of the father, the landowner. He sent his one and only son, his beloved son. When the tenant farmers saw the heir apparent come over the horizon, they knew with accuracy his identity. They had no question, who is this guy? They knew precisely who the son of the landowner was. And by him coming to the vineyard, they assumed the old man is dead. And now the son, the only rightful heir, is coming to take the inheritance from us. The tenant farmers devised a sinister plan. They said, if we knock him off, if we kill the son of the landowner, then we will get the inheritance. We will get this vineyard. Because even the Talmud teaches that if there is no heir apparent, that those who are in the land will then possess the land. So they thought to themselves, if we can knock off the only heir apparent of the vineyard, if we can just get him out of the way, out of the picture, then this vineyard will belong to us. They took him outside of the vineyard, beyond the wall that surrounded the vineyard, as to not get any of his blood on those precious grapes. And there, they murdered him. They slaughtered him. Jesus asked the question, what then should the landowner do? What should this landowner do to these tenant farmers who have not only roughed up all of his servants that he sent to them, but now they've had the audacity to go so far as to execute the one and only son of the landowner? Once again, it's Matthew's version of the story where someone in the crowd says that the landowner will bring those wretches to a wretched end. In Luke's version, Jesus echoes that. When he says the landowner will come, he will kill those tenant farmers, and he will give the vineyard to others. 
When the crowd heard this, they cried out, no, may this never be. When Luke says that the crowd heard this, the word for heard, it means to hear with understanding. In other words, they were picking up what Jesus was putting down. They were automatically connecting the dots in real time. They understood the story. The story was not veiled to them. Many times parables are hard to understand. But in this story, on this day, during Passion Week, they knew with vivid clarity exactly what Jesus was saying. They heard with understanding. My question is, what did they understand? They understood that the landowner's God, that the vineyard is Israel, that the tenant farmers are Jewish people, that the servants of the landowner, those are the prophets. And I also would go one step further. I think they probably understood that the son of the landowner in that story was the Messiah who was to come. They were understanding The parallels of the story. They were putting everything together. When Jesus says that the landowner, God, will come and give the vineyard to others, they responded, no, may this never be. The reason they responded no was not because they had killed the son of the landowner. They responded this way because they heard Jesus to say that God was going to take the vineyard and give it to somebody else. Now, throughout Israel's history, a vineyard was a readily immediate symbolism of the nation of Israel. Numerous times in the Old Testament, Israel is compared to the vineyard of God. I'll give you one Old Testament reference. It's one of several, but this one will suffice. It's Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet says, I will sing a love song. For the one that I love who has a vineyard. For my beloved has a vineyard. He has moved away the rocks. He has planted the choices of vines. He has established a wall, built a watchtower. He has provided everything for that vineyard to be successful. In Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7, it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. The men of Judah are the garden of his delight. Isaiah says that God went and looked for good grapes from Israel, and all he found were bad grapes. I think that Jesus has this passage in mind when he tells this story on this day in this given week of Passover week. I think that Jesus is thinking about Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah 5, he He knows the details of that passage. He arranges his story around those details. In the story of Jesus, the landowner provided everything. He he dug the uh, cleared away the stones. He planted the choices of vines. He built the wall. He uh, uh, built up the watchtower. He built the wine press and dug the wine press out of convenience. I mean, everything that the landowner does in Jesus' story is everything that God has done for Israel in Isaiah chapter five. Because if you think about it, Isaiah tells us that God set up Israel for success. He gave Israel everything she needed to bear witness to the identity and the activity of God Almighty. 
Israel had the law of God, the word of God, the promises of God, the presence of God, the prophets of God. Israel had everything. And when God went and looked for good fruit, good grapes, all he found were bad grapes. So what is God to do? He's to give it to others. Clearly, in this story, Jesus is telling us that the vineyard is Israel. He's also telling us that the servants of the landowner, those are the prophets. All you have to do is read back through the Old Testament. Everybody from Moses all the way up to the New Testament, John the Baptist, all the prophets, they were mistreated, they were maligned, uh, they were uh, beaten, uh, they were persecuted. Just think of a few, for example. Isaiah, history tells us, was sawed in two. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit. Micah was punched repeatedly in the face. Zechariah, he was stoned right outside the entrance to the temple courts, and he was stoned by his own people, Jewish nation. I think that when Jesus is telling the story and he's describing what happens to these servants, the listeners of his story are thinking, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That sounds like what our forefathers did to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Zechariah, just to name a few. I mean, that's exactly what was happening. So they were immediately connecting the dots. And in Jesus' story, what the, what the tenant farmers did to the one and only son of the landowner, yes, that's what the Jews, that's what the Roman government, that's what you and I, that's what we did to Jesus. We saw he was the son, the Jews saw that he was the son, the heir apparent, and they executed him. And Jesus, before his death, tells this story, and he predicts, and he asks the question, what will the landowner now do? He'll take the vineyard and give it to others. Now, who are the others? Well, I think it's more complicated than it might first appear. I think it's more than simply saying that God took the vineyard and took it from the Jews and gave it to the Gentiles. I think it's more than just simply stating that he took it from the nation of Israel and gave the vineyard to the church. I think that, that those others are followers of Jesus. I think that what God did is that God said, hey, I've given my vineyard to Israel, for they were to be the caretakers of truth. They were to be the custodians of the promises. But I went to them and repeatedly gave them opportunity after opportunity, and instead of bearing good fruit, they, they, they bore bad fruit. They didn't have good grapes, they had rotten grapes. And so I'm gonna take the vineyard from them and give it to others, because the others are now to be custodians of God's truth and caretakers of his promises. And, and the others are to do. Who are the others? The others are the followers of Jesus. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus come from every nation, every kindred, every tribe, and every tongue. They come from Jews and Gentiles. There were and are believing Jews who affirm that Jesus is the Christ. And there are many Gentiles back then and today who affirm that Jesus is the Christ. That God's people, that 
the followers of Jesus, they are found in Israel and Peru and Pakistan and United States of America and China and Russia and Korea. In fact, God's people are littered and planted all over the globe. And if you identify as a Christian, if you identify as a follower of Jesus, if you think of yourself as one who's in the kingdom of Christ, then you are a caretaker of the vineyard. You're a custodian of God's truth. God has given it to you. He's given you his truth, his blessing, his provision, his word, his promises. He's given all this to you for you to be set up for success. And you, my friend, we are to be caretakers and custodians of the very truth of God. So we are to be, using another analogy, salt and light in a world that is very bland and very dark. So we are to produce good grapes. What is, what is the good fruit that we are to produce? I mean, fortunately, the New Testament is not quiet about this. The New Testament tells us repeatedly the fruit that we are to bear. And it bears repeating, no pun intended, for me to share it with you one more time today. What is the fruit that you and I are supposed to bear? Well, in a place like Romans chapter 1, Paul clearly says that the people that are converted to Christ, that God brings to Christ through your witness, that's your fruit. It's your fruit of evangelism. So the gospel conversations that you have, the people that you think about, that that you're close to who are not close to the Lord and you want to live for Christ and you want to talk about Christ and you want to introduce them to Christ. When that happens, that's evangelistic fruit in your life. So all the time we need to be thinking, who am I trying to, who am I trying to reach for the gospel? And if a specific person doesn't come to mind in three seconds or less, we're not being intentional enough. We've got to produce fruit, and part of that fruit is evangelistic converts. We're thinking all the time, who are we close to who's not close to the Lord? But then a place like Galatians chapter 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is one fruit of the Spirit. It's not fruits. It's not nine different fruits, but it's nine different attributes, nine different characteristics. That if we have the Spirit of God that has sealed us for salvation, then we ought to act differently. We ought to act consistently with the fruit of the Spirit. We ought to be in step with the Spirit of God. So when we are loving and kind and patient, when we're gentle, when we're faithful, when we're doing these things, then we are demonstrating good fruit for Christ. You go to a place like Romans chapter 15, fruit is also your loot. It's the money. It's the money that you give to the Lord. So when you come to church and you give your tithes and your offerings, when you come and, and you put money in the offering plate or in the offering box or, or you make a contribution electronically, when you give to the work of Christ in and through First Baptist Church Pelham, that is fruit that is credited unto your account. Then also you go to a place like Hebrews chapter 13. And the author of that letter says that fruit is the praise that tumbles from your lips. That when you praise the Lord, 
When you come here on Sunday, when you worship him in song and scripture, when you talk about him, when you share him, when you just praise him, whether you're in the sanctuary or in the streets, whether you're at home or in the marketplace, whether you're driving down the road in your SUV, your truck, or your car, whether whatever you're doing, when you're praising the Lord, that is the fruit of praise that comes from your lips. What does God expect from you? He expects for you to help win people unto Christ in evangelism. He, he expects you to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. He expects you to be generous with your resources and give unto Him. He expects you to praise Him because there's never a bad time to praise the Lord. Can I get an amen? I mean, we are to praise Him. That is to tumble from our lips. And when we do these things, the New Testament Scripture says that we are bearing much fruit. So Jesus in this story he says that the Lord of the vineyard, God himself, will take the vineyard from those that it was originally given to and he'll give it to the followers of Jesus. And we are to bear much fruit. Jesus then goes one step further. He identifies the son in that story as the stone that is the cornerstone of all of eternity. The son in the story, the beloved son, the one whom I love. Oh, doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus' baptism and the mountain of transfiguration? When God the Father spoke from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is my beloved son, do what he says. Jesus is just reminding the crowd what God the Father said of him. Because he is the son in this story. And the son becomes the stone. Jesus quotes Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The capstone, another word for that is the cornerstone. A cornerstone had to be perfect in every way. If you were an architect in those days, you understood that stones were hand-cut. And because they were hand-cut, it was easy for stones to have flaws and, 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 and cracks and breaks in them. And the moment, uh, the moment a stone got flawed, it was cast aside. Because a cornerstone of a building had to be perfect. It had to be perfect in every way. A cornerstone was the beginning stone of a building. So it had to be perfect on the bottom. So the foundation was solid, flat, and sure. The cornerstone had to be perfect on every side. So it would be built perpendicular to the ground. Cornerstone had to be perfect on top. So that those other stones that were laid on top of it would construct a building that was pure, straight, and true. And not one that would lean to the left or to the right. The cornerstone had to be perfect. Every builder understood this. Jesus says the stone the builders has re rejected has become the capstone. Jesus is saying symbolically that the people of the first century, they looked at Jesus and they said, we know he claims to be Messiah. He claims to be the long-awaited Christ. He claims to be the son, the heir apparent of the kingdom. He claims to be the one to come to bring salvation to Jew and Gentile. But we don't know if he really is. 
And we don't think he's perfect enough. We don't think he's the right one. And so the people threw the son away like a stone that was flawed. The stone the builders rejected actually is the cornerstone. Jesus is perfect in every single way. Jesus is perfect. He never had a sinful thought, never did a sinful deed, never spoke a sinful word. He never did anything sinful, never had a bad attitude, never had a bad action. He was perfect in every way. Jesus was and is the centerpiece. He is the crux of Christianity. Not only is he the king of this kingdom, he is the king of the nation. He is the king of the globe. He is the king of the cosmos. He is perfect in every single way. Jesus is the God-man. He's not a man who became God. He's not merely a godly man. He is the one true God-man, fully God and fully human. He is perfectly God and he is perfectly human. He is perfect in every single way. He is the cornerstone of this kingdom. Everything is built on him. If it's built on him, then everything in the kingdom is straight and true and pure. That's true of the kingdom. It's also true of your individual life. If you build your life on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, then everything that is built upon him in and through you will be right and accurate and appropriate. But if you become the cornerstone, if somebody else in your life becomes the cornerstone, everything that you build will be crooked because everybody other than Jesus is crooked. Can I get an amen? Every person, every group, every world philosophy, every ideology in this, in this world, in this culture, it is crooked. It it is depraved, it is bent, it is twisted. Only Jesus is straight and true and accurate. He is perfect in every single way. He is the stone that the builders rejected. And actually, he is the cornerstone. Because Jesus is cornerstone, because he's the centerpiece, because he's the crux of everything in our life and faith, we realize that we can't make too much of Jesus. We can't think about him too much. We can't serve him too much. We can't worship him too much. We can't love him too much. We can't give to him too much. We can't talk to him too much. Can't talk about him too much. We can't follow him too much. We cannot make too much of Jesus. He just deserves that much. Why? Because he's perfect in every way. He is the cornerstone. You build your life on him. Because anything else that's a replacement of Jesus is a crooked cornerstone. What the tenant farmers wanted to do is they wanted to be their own cornerstone. They wanted to decide what is right and wrong. They wanted to be their own administrator of identity. They were the ones who wanted to be the ones that decided and called the shots and I don't know about you, but 2,000 years have passed, and I still know a lot of tenant farmers. I know a lot of people in our culture who are trying to be their own cornerstone. They're trying to uh, say who they are, make their own identity, declare and define what is true and what is right, what is good, what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral. Friends, everything other than Jesus is a crooked cornerstone because Jesus is perfect in every single way. So Jesus said that the stone the builders rejected, he's become the cornerstone. The son in this story is none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the beloved of the father. And Jesus is the one who was sent into the world 
And the world did not recognize him. They did not receive him. They rejected him and they executed him. Now, many people have made a lot about the fact that in the story, Jesus says that the son was taken outside of the vineyard and there he was murdered. As Jesus was taken outside the city of Jerusalem and there he was crucified. I understand the correlation, but if we keep the analogy consistent, the vineyard is not the city of Jerusalem. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. It is, it, it is the historic nation. So Jesus went to his own and his own rejected him. They despised him. They kicked him out. They crucified him. Now you and I both know that not only those Jewish people crucified him, but we also crucified him too. We are just as guilty on Good Friday to shout crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus tells this story so that you'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the cornerstone. He is the building block. He is the centerpiece. Only life that is built on him will be accurate because everything built on something other than Jesus will end up being destroyed for it is crooked, it is twisted, it is depraved. Jesus says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. Anyone that has this stone fall on him will be crushed. People take those last few lines and they say, you know what, it's far better for you to fall on Jesus and be broken than to have Jesus fall on you and be crushed. I understand why people would say that, but I don't think that's why Jesus made this statement. Because the end result for both is that you're completely smashed. You're completely broken to pieces. I mean, whether you fall and you're broken against the stone or whether the stone falls on you and you're crushed, the end result is that you are smashed to pieces. What's the point? Why does Jesus make this statement? He wants you to know that the stone is unbreakable. The stone Jesus is unbreakable. You, you slam into Jesus and you'll be changed, but he won't. He's the changeless one. He's the unbreakable one. He's the unmistakable one. I mean, you come up against Jesus, you can smash against him as much as you want to. You can go against him as much as you want to. You can say that you are your own God and that you get to make your own decisions as much as you want to. At the end of the day, you'll be broken and Jesus will be the cornerstone that's tried and true and consistent. He's unbreakable. He's unmistakable. He's the cornerstone who's perfect in every way. Why do we build our life on Jesus? Why do we make much of him? Why do we want to do everything in this life to be built on him and to be pleased by him? Why is that? The answer is because, yes, he's the cornerstone, but ultimately, he is the king of the vineyard. He's the king of the nation. He's the king of the globe. He's the king of the cosmos. He proved his kingship because he walked some 42 generations. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He had a three-year ministry in and through Galilee. At the end of that three-year ministry, he was handed over to the religious rulers. They gave him to the Roman authorities. 
And there, Jesus was crucified. He stumbled and staggered outside the streets, uh, outside the city of Jerusalem. He went up the skull-shaped hill called Calvary, Golgotha. And there, Jesus died. One faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century, he who knew no sin became your sin. Your past sin, your present sin, your future sin. All the iniquity that should be placed upon you was placed upon Jesus. Jesus is our suitable substitute. He is our sufficient Savior. He has to be the God-man because only God has the currency to pay your sin debt. And only as a man can he serve as your suitable substitute. So Jesus is the God-man. And the God-man came and he died one Friday. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it. He stayed there for Friday, all day Saturday, even into Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, Jesus verified he is King of kings and Lord of lords because Jesus, the dead man, began to breathe again. Jesus, the dead man, actually got up. Jesus got up, rose from the dead, burst forth from the tomb. The women came to the tomb. They had a question on their mind. Who will roll the stone away for us? When they got there, they saw the stone already been rolled away. An angel was seated atop it. The angel engaged them in conversation. Why you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's alive, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now go and tell. Friends, I gotta tell you, the stone was rolled away not to get Jesus out, but to get us in. For us to come and see and to go and tell. For 2,000 years, we've been coming and seeing and going and telling. We've been coming and seeing that Jesus is alive. Because he's alive, he gives evidence and proof. He is the cornerstone, perfect in every way. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the king of the cosmos. We've been coming and seeing that Jesus is alive. He's exactly who he said he was. We've been going and telling that he is the cornerstone. You better build your life on him because only a life built on Jesus will last in this life and the one to come. Jesus is the cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I holy lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. There's only two things you can do with Jesus. You can either receive him or reject him. That's it. There's not a third category. Either you receive him or you reject him. If you receive him, you've got to receive him on the basis of this story. What's the evidence that somebody has received Jesus? They bear good fruit. You don't bear fruit for salvation. You bear fruit from salvation. It's not to earn or to merit salvation. It's to show gratitude of the great salvation that God has given to you. So if Christ has received you, and if you have received Christ, then you will bear much fruit. Now, will all of your grapes be good? No. There's always a bad grape in every cluster, right? But the whole cluster ain't bad. Sometimes you might have a bad grape every once in a while. But overall, your life is producing good grapes, good fruit, good evidence, not for salvation, but from salvation. Friend, this morning I ask you, have you received Jesus? 
I'm not asking, have you walked down an aisle? Have you filled out a card? Even have you gotten wet in the water of baptistry? I'm asking, have you received him according to this story? And the evidence is that you bear good fruit. The only other option is for you to reject him. And if a person rejects Jesus, they're claiming that they are their own cornerstone, that they are their own God, and everything they produce is crooked and rotten. You know, you don't have to tell me when fruit gets rotten. I can see it. I can smell it. And I ain't going to taste it. Because it's obvious. That's rotten fruit. In the same way, you don't have to tell me that fruit is good. I can see it. I can smell it. I can taste it and see that the fruit is good. So it should be obvious if we've received him or rejected him. And maybe this morning, King Jesus, who is the fruit inspector of the kingdom, maybe he's nestled up beside you. He's just come into the sanctuary today and just nestled beside you. And he's just examining your life. And he's asking you to receive him wholeheartedly. Maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus as Savior. Lord, today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day when you come and you take one of the ministers by the hand and you say, hey, I need to subject my life to that Jesus, the one who is perfect in every way. He's the one that gets to determine what's right and wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's in bounds and out of bounds. I want to build my life on him and his word. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody who desires to receive him will be received by him. And maybe this morning you need to come and receive him. Maybe you um, are building your life on Christ. And, but the reality is the last couple of days, maybe a few weeks or months, um, you've taken an inventory of what you've been producing and it, it's not been smelling very good. It's kind of a little stale or rotten. Oh, friend, today I want you to know that the landowner of the vineyard, he's patient with you. He is so gracious. He is far gracious to you than we are to each other. He's more gracious to you than we are to ourselves sometimes. This landowner is so gracious. He's so patient. He'll give you time and time and time again. He'll give you a chance after chance. He'll encourage you to come and he'll, he'll clean you up. And all you have to do is come to the landowner and ask for forgiveness and he will forgive. This morning I wonder, is there anybody who needs to come? Anybody needs to come and receive him. Anybody needs to come and pray asking for forgiveness. I want you to know the altar is open. Maybe you need to come and join this church. Be planted here at First Baptist Pelham and produce great fruit in keeping with your repentance. Whatever God is calling you to do, in this moment, obey. In this moment, yield yourself unto him. Because our Jesus, he's worthy. He's the cornerstone. He's perfect in every way. He's the son of the landowner who came on a rescue mission to seek and to save you. He gives you the keys to his vineyard so that you may be a custodian and a caretaker of his truth and his promises. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. We pray that you will lead us that we will respond in obedience. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.